beer fans, and welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew. Well, Drew Beecher. <laughs> Together we're the authors of Experimental Brewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we interview 25 of the world's best brewers and get their tips, tricks, and secrets and put them right into your brain pan. So now together, you know, we've been brewing for almost 40 years. A lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge. And I'm the guy who's a lot of beer. A lot of beer. Now, I'm the guy known for strange beer and stranger ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Oh, yeah. And so on today's episode, well, we got a lot to cover. We've got uh, quite a few announcements. We're going to do that. We're going to take some feedback, go into the pub and talk some more of the beery news. Uh, I got some things in the library to talk about. And we're even going to stop by the brewery to talk a couple of different things. Before we head into the lounge, where we're going to talk today to Brian Pierce of YCH Hops about, well, this year's hop harvest and what sort of fun things we can expect from YCH and the hop industry in the coming year. And then, of course, we'll give you a quick tip. We'll answer some of your questions, close out with something other than beer, and get you on your way. Man, I'm exhausted already. I think I need a nap. Yeah, you do that, old man. But in the meanwhile... <laughs> Why don't we go talk to some of our sponsors? Yeah, stick around. We're going to do all of that stuff when we come back right after these messages. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iodophore. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, those were some of our sponsors. They're noble people because they make this entire process well possible. So when you, whenever you hear from one of our sponsors, whenever you interact with one of our sponsors, make sure you reach out and say to them, hey, I heard you guys on Experimental Brewing. Thanks. So, Denny, you want to kick us off with our announcements? Because, boy, do we have a few. Yes, we do. And the first announcement is happy anniversary to us. This uh, is episode 52, and that means that we have been doing this podcast for two years now. Two years. Wow. It's a good thing I haven't gotten any older during that time. I know. Well, I'm trying to think. So, 52 episodes, and that means we're playing with a full deck, but there's <laughs> two of us, so maybe we're only still playing with a half a deck. 
I would say, yeah, no more than half a deck a piece, man. There you go. Well, as long as it's not half a deciliter. Let's go. Yeah, right. So to go along with our second anniversary, we actually have a new survey coming out, right? Yeah. So if you go to experimentalbrew.com slash survey, that's experimentalbrew.com slash survey, you'll be able to fill out, well, the state of the podcast survey for us. You know, we'll ask you a couple of questions. You know, mostly we want to know. Are we doing things right? Are we doing things wrong? Are the things we should be doing more of things we should be doing less of? Ukulele. Uh, <laughs> yeah, more ukulele would be good. Yeah. But here's the real the, the real upshot for those of you uh, yawn listeners who are out there thinking, should I take a survey? Should I not take a survey? We are going to have a bunch of prizes that we're going to give away, including some gift certificates to Atlantic Brew Supply, who is the sponsor over on the Brew Files. Uh, Dana Garvis from Oregon Brew Lab, who has helped us out with some of our experiences in the past. She's uh, offering up some certificates for you know a free test. And then also our good friends at Brewcraft USA are going to give up some Genesis Fermenters, which we're going to talk about in a little bit in the show. Right. So uh, do the survey. Help us make the podcast better and more like you like and get a chance to win some cool stuff. I can't see how you can lose. The only way you can lose is by not going to experimentalbrew.com slash survey. That's right. And we want to let you know that there's a new episode of The Brew Files that came out about a week ago. It is episode 21, and it's called A Homebrew Party. It's all about how to put on an event for Learn to Homebrew Day on November 4th, and you can even extrapolate it into uh, pretty much any kind of situation where you have people over to learn about homebrewing. And we have some of our own ideas about how you can make the event more fun, more interesting, more educational, and more beery overall. And really... How to get people to start putting that needle of homebrew love right in the vein. Ooh, boy, I, that's uh, quite the image to think about there. <laughs> well, that, that's my job around here. On to the self-congratulations department. Yes, yeah, so we are now in the department of backslapping. A couple of weeks ago, the GABF, you know, the past couple of years, there has been the North American Guild of Beer Writers. Uh, they've been offering up awards, and we've actually done pretty well. Both of our books have won awards there. Uh, a couple of my articles have won awards there. And this year we added another medal, a second place for best podcast. And it was actually on the episode about IBU is a lie. You know, when we had Glenn Tenseth on the show. So I think that's pretty rad, but I still want that gold. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm really honored that uh, our peers felt like we're doing something worthwhile. We know that uh, there's a lot of you guys out there who really like it, and it's cool that the people from the Guild of Beer Writers like it, too. So thanks, guys. We appreciate it, and we'll try and keep up the good work. And finally... An announcement that we've announced a couple times before, if you are in the market for a Pico Brew Zymatic, you can get $300 off by using the code PicoDenny, P-I-C-O-D-E-N-N-Y, when you order from their website at PicoBrew.com. Just enter PicoDenny when you check out, and you'll get 300 bucks off on your Zymatic. Drew and I both have them. We love them. I'm going to be using mine here real soon to kick into another IBU type of experiment. So they're great for brewing. They're great for experimenting. If you're in the market for one, might as well save yourself 300 bucks. Yeah, and I've got my Pico Pico going right now. So no discount. On, oh, cool. No discount on the Pico Pico with Pico Denny, but you can still get a Pico discount on the Pico Zymatic with the Pico Denny code. Wow. That's confusing. Hey, but since we're talking Pico, here's a little tip. Don't tell anybody else, but 
there's a new Pico pack coming out for your Pico. Pretty soon you'll be able to brew my bourbon vanilla Imperial Porter in your Pico. There's a kit on its way. So keep an eye out for that. Hey, double secret probation time. There's also one from our Citrus Saison coming along. <laughs> and don't forget that you can support us by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast, or you can go to our website, experimentalbrew.com, and click on the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links. Or you can click on the Patreon link and pledge a buck or two to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Well, this part of the year, it's Axel's Angels and the Desi Strong Foundation funding the fight, care, and treatment of pediatric cancer. So won't you give a buck for the kids with cancer? Yeah, man, really. It's a great cause. It'll make you feel better. It'll help your karma. And you'll be walking six feet off the ground all day long, right? I'll take it, as long as it's not illegal. <laughs> That's right. Okay, we have some feedback that we got here. Right. You want to take the first one? Well, hold on. I think, I think that needs a proper introduction. It's now time for Feedback. 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 And our first piece of feedback comes from uh, Richard Tenhulzen, who says, regarding the transcripts of your podcast, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm hearing impaired, so the info must come into my brain via my eyes. Please forward my sincere thanks to Richard Westmoreland. Uh, as you, uh, and it goes on to say, as you're both on the HA Governing Committee, I hope you and the HA would also consider producing transcripts of the Homebrew Con speakers as well. These, there are professionals that do this for a living. See you in Portland. Well, Richard, first, thank you. For everybody else who isn't aware or missed the announcement, the other week we actually put out a transcript that was done by Richard Westmoreland, one of our listeners of the podcast, who went in and transcribed all of episode 10, our first Q&A episode, so that people could actually go back and see what our answers were. And so that is now actually up on the website. You'll see a link for podcast transcripts if the link itself is not directly on the front page. And you can read through and actually see, well, what we answered and how we answered it. And then you can make fun of us for getting it wrong. Just what I was going to say. Yeah, and now on to Richard's other point about the HA Governing Committee and the HA uh, Homebrew Con speakers. Uh, Richard, your point is well taken, and we have actually forwarded that information over to the AHA and said, hey, you know, there's some people out there who are requesting this service, and they are taking a look at it. Yeah, right. Uh, no guarantees, but uh, it, it may happen, and uh, that would be pretty darn cool if it did. So our next piece of feedback comes from Andrew Roth, who was replying to uh, when we had our discussion about the keg purge experiment. Well, I remember Andrew gave us feedback in last week as well about the keg purge experiment. So this is feedback on the feedback. <laughs> yeah, right. And he was responding to uh, my wondering about uh, if I had purged my keg with CO2, what would happen if I stuck my arm in there to uh, add dry hops and stuff like that. So Andrew says, hello again, Denny and Drew. I've been probably sending you guys too many emails with info lately. Never, 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 man, because that's material for the podcast. Info is good. That's right. But I have some more data to add to your keg purge theories. Denny mentioned that he wondered how much oxygen was added when he added his bagged hops for the dry hop and if this erased the gains from the purge. This was an issue that we wondered about at my old job and did some testing to find the answer. On average, our beer after fermentation would have around 10 parts per billion of oxygen. We added our dry hops by dumping them in the top of the fermenter and then ran them through a pump for six hours. I assume he means the beer and not the hops, but who knows. 
We took a measurement the next day and during filtration found an increase of around 15 parts per billion from the dry hop, which is basically nothing. So I assume that that means they ended up with 25 parts per billion because uh, he says increase of, not increase to. Further, if Denny is worried about oxygen ingress while adding hops, he can attach the gas to his keg and turn it to 1 PSI so that there is positive pressure coming out of the keg as he adds in his hops. Again, I'm a big fan of citizen science, so keep up the good work. Well, thanks, Andrew, and I really like that last idea of keeping, like, just a hair of pressure on the keg as you're working in there to kind of make sure that things keep getting displaced. That sounds to me like a like an easy and effective thing to do, and I will definitely be trying that the next time. Yeah, but I do think it's interesting that, I mean, you're right, it's either 5 or 15 parts per billion of oxygen entrained with the hops, which is actually kind of less than what I thought it would be. Yeah, right. Well, and you know what? And I assume that he's talking whole hops. I don't know if it would be different for pellets. Um, I don't know if the volume of hops you add would make a difference. If they are dry hopping large amounts of beer, then they would be using larger amounts of hops than we do. So they might get larger amounts of oxygen entrained in them. But it certainly sounds like uh, their results are that it's pretty negligible. There you go. Remember, purge is your friend. <laughs> that's right so i don't know about you dude but i'm thirsty should we head over to the pub no nah, i thought i was going to go to the library today okay you go to the library i'll go to the pub and when i'm having a beer you can be sitting over there being bored how's that okay <laughs> works for me stick around we'll be right back after these messages Y Yeast has been producing premium liquid yeast for over 30 years and continues to provide homebrewers with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals. Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham collaborated with Y Yeast to bring you this quarter's private collection. As the weather starts to cool, some of the world's greatest beer festivals are getting ready to celebrate. Lagers can be the ideal beer for any season, but there's no better time than autumn to brew some of the classics. With their lower fermentation temperatures and accentuated maltiness, our 2002 PC Gambrinus Lager, 2487 PC Hellebach, and 2575 PC Kolsch II will lend ideal variety and complexity through the months to come. Get them October through December 2017. We're back. We're sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers. What you drinking, Drew? Uh, I am drinking the Marooner Martzen from recently opened up 14 Cannons over in uh, Westlake Village here in L.A. And I've got to get out to talk to these guys because their whole setup is actually kind of interesting because they're not just a brewery. But they're a brewery equipment showplace. A brewery equipment showplace. Yeah. <laughs> what, so what does that exactly mean? Well, it means that they're working with a, a, 
equipment manufacturer and are actually serving as an on kind of a sales room. You know, so it's a brewery slash, hey, come in and check out the equipment and, you know, see if you want to buy some for yourself. Cool, man. Yeah, so they get they get to have all the fun toys. So I totally have to get out there because uh, Nick Bordelon, who's the brewer out there, is also making some really incredible beer as well as having a, sort of an interesting business model for the place. Wow, that's cool, man. That's a that's a, an interesting concept. Yeah, and it's right in the same area as like a couple of other breweries. So there's now this place in or this sort of little block in Westlake Village, which is a far flung suburb of Los Angeles where within a block there are about four breweries and you can kind of just walk back door to back door on each of them wow well i've been drinking a beer that i suspect has been around for a while and i just discovered it Uh, my wife went to costco the other day and picked up a uh, variety case of stone ipas four different ones in it one of them was their delicious ipa which of course i had to try first because if you're calling an ipa delicious it damn well better be uh, and I really thought that it was. Uh, it, it's gluten-reduced. I'm not sure exactly how they do that. They don't give you a lot of information about it. But the hop combinations in it are just absolutely stunning and, dare I say it, delicious. So uh, if, if you're into uh, big brewery beers, this one from Stone is definitely worth your time to check out. Yeah, and I think that one has... Lemon drop and El Dorado amongst some of the hops, right? And it, yeah, and I, come on, if it's gluten reduced, they have to be doing the cl- the Clarity Farm trick. That's what I would assume. You know, I, I don't know if they do it through their ingredients or through Clarity Firm or what, but it's a, a really, really well made beer. Um, all of their beers, I've found, you know, despite how fruity they may finish, have a really nice firm bitterness up front, and I. That's really what I'm looking for in my IPAs. The Brewers Association has started expanding their independent beer program with a a new little thing that they're doing, and I'll let you talk about that. Right. If you don't remember, back in June, just after the American Homebrewers Association conference, the Brewers Association launched the Independent Craft Beer Seal, you know, which we're seeing more and more. I think nearly uh, what over 2,000 breweries have adopted the the seal. Uh, so far, which is a pretty good, you know, pretty good uptake break for something that you know just got got launched, and of course the whole point is with all the acquisitions that have been going on in the commercial beer space by the big guys, you know if we can't compete so much, if, or if the word craft has been muddied so much by these acquisitions, well the point is okay now we can compete on the idea of independent because these breweries that we're supporting are still independent, right? They're not owned by Anheuser Busch, they're not owned by a big beverage corporation. So round one was to get the breweries to buy into it and start displaying that independent craft beer seal. Now round two has been their campaign to actually sort of communicate some of this to the consumers. That's called uh, Take Craft Back, and it's a website take back uh, uh, takecraftback.com. And if you go there, there's a whole video, sort of a very funny video, at least to me, and a whole a whole setup talking about how they're going to pledge. Or they're collecting pledges to fund $216 billion so that they can acquire Anheuser-Busch and take craft back. <laughs> and now, yeah. now, of course, if you do the math on it, it's something like, uh, I think it ends up being something like $900 per U.S. citizen who is a, a beer drinker or is a drinker at all. It's a completely unfeasible goal. But now everybody, of course, 
read this, and they launched it on Monday, I think, while everybody's very caffeine-deprived. And I mean, to me, I, I watch it, and I know instantly it's a joke. But if you go and you look at a lot of the reaction around the web, there's a lot of people going, this is a waste of money. What are you doing? You can't buy ABI is not going to sell to you. Blah, blah. A lot of humor-impaired people these days. But if you actually go through and you click in, on a pledge and you say, I pledge $1,000 for this cause, what you're really doing is you're signing up to get some free swag. You know, get a t-shirt, get a hat, get a bottle opener, something like that. There's no money being collected. It's just a giant joke to get people to actually sort of pay attention. Now, I thought it was funny. There's been a bunch of people out there who thought it was funny. I think you had a bit of a different reaction. Yeah, I, I did. You know, I understand that it's a joke. Uh, maybe maybe I'm humor impaired or something. It just, I don't know. It, it, it seems kind of like fifth grade to me, but far be it for me to judge other people, and especially in something like this. Uh, I understand why they're doing it and what they're doing, and the fact that I don't find it particularly clever doesn't uh, diminish the fact that they're uh, trying to do a good thing. Yeah, and, and remember, all of this stuff is, again, there's no money being collected. It's basically just a, a, a big joke. And to me, it's it's just another leg of sort of a multi-prong marketing campaign, right? You got one prong with the breweries supporting the seal. Now you've got this consumer messaging uh, prong. There'll be more steps to this, obviously, as time goes on. But the whole point is to really get people beyond just you and I and everybody who's out there listening to this podcast who's aware of the whole acquisition game to start to realize what some of this is and why it actually matters. So, again... To me, I always like when people can use humor, but of course, in this day and age, when you know so much uh, so much outrageousness is happening or being communicated on social media, and people are taking very strong polar stances on everything, satire can be a little bit hard to actually get get across to people because this is a very satir satirical take. And I mean, hell, we know that the original piece of satire, the big one out there that we all had to study at some point with Jonathan Swift and the Modest Proposal. You know, about eating babies in Ireland to to get around the potato famine, people took him seriously. If they take that seriously, well, that makes sense. Yeah, and, um, mm -hmm. if if people took that seriously, then yeah, there are going to be a lot of people who just aren't going to pay attention to the fact that this is satirical as well. Yeah, well, you know, um, obviously, you don't want to just be preaching to the choir because let's face it, their core market is going to be on their side, and doing something this outrageous and crazy will definitely get them some publicity and bring it to the attention of people who might not be aware of the situation, and that is indeed a good thing. Yep. All right, so next up, let's, uh, well, let's go to something that's probably a little bit of a better uh, sort of angle on fundraising, and one of the reasons why I think some people had a negative reaction to the Take Craft Back campaign was recently we've been hit with a lot of natural disasters, you know, between hurricanes hitting the southern portion of the country, including Puerto Rico, and, you know, earthquakes happening and big fires happening up in wine country, so around Napa and Sonoma and Santa Rosa. And the folks at Russian River, Vinny and Natalie, had had a thing, that the, a, a label that they call Sonoma Pride, which was all about you know, products of Sonoma and sort of raising money for Sonoma charities. They'd done a couple of beers under the Sonoma Pride name, and they just announced that what they're doing is they're going to release a new beer called Sonoma Pride, 
And all the money for that, the proceeds of that, are going to go to charities helping people recover from the wildfires. And as we speak, the wildfires are still being fought. And we know a lot of people who got uh, impacted by this. A lot of brewers got impacted. A lot of wineries got impacted. A lot of people lost their homes in arguably some of the worst firestorms that you could ever imagine. Because, hey, all that rain that we got last winter, great for young growth. But then it all burned up because it provided a lot of fuel. Yeah, right. So what I think is interesting about it is that not only is the money going for you know Sonoma relief efforts, but they are also auctioning off, or sorry, not auctioning off, they are raffling off chances to win a skip-the-line pass for Plenty of the Younger days. So every February when they have the two-week period of time when Plenty of the Younger is being released at the brew pub in Santa Rosa, you know, the, there's massive lines for this beer. I mean, huge lines. And people wait for hours. So they are raffling off 14 chances, one for each day of the release, to completely skip the line and be able to go in first and have your Plenty of the Younger. And you can go and get tickets for that at SonomaPride.com. We'll include a link to that. But uh, make sure you get out there and do some things to support Sonoma Pride and help the relief efforts. Yeah, man. Uh, thanks to Russian River. We know that they're great people, and this is just more evidence of that. Yeah, and so now we go from being able to skip the line via giving to charitable cause to there was a really interesting article in uh, Punch Magazine or PunchDrink.com, I think it is. Yeah, uh, in PunchDrink.com about how other half, the brewery, became the official beer of Wall Street. And... <laughs> I don't know what to say about this, man. It's like doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. So, yeah, uh, how how this brewery other half became sort of the official drink of Wall Street. And it is it is somewhat appropriate that this is in Punch Drink magazine because you read this and all you really want to do is punch somebody in the face. Because <laughs> they talk about, like, in addition to sort of high-end wines and whiskeys and all this sort of stuff, other half's New England-style IPAs, the hazy IPAs, that you have to wait in line for and everything else have become sort of status symbols in Wall Street with parties full of, like, coolers that are thousands of dollars worth of beer. And, of course, if you're a busy Wall Street guy, you're not waiting in line. So they actually talk to people who set up companies to do line waiting and using TaskRabbit and everything else just to be able to go get their fill of these beers so that they can fill their coolers and be, you know, badass with their their Wall Street buddies. And uh, this is not what I like. And of course they're like, "Oh, well, you know, if they if they really wanted to, they could raise the price of the beer to match the, you know, the level of Wall Street demand that they're having, but then that would price everybody else out." So, I don't know about that, man. So, I, we consider it a good thing that we can just pay these people to go wait in line for us. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, I, I hardly know what to say about this. It, it reminds me a little bit of Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, totally. It's it's totally that exact same vibe, but it's also just one of those things where you look at it and you're going, uh, one, I don't get the line waiting thing to begin with. Uh, never, never really done it for anything like that. And boy, I really don't get the idea of paying somebody to wait in line for me because uh, for a beer. There's plenty of beer out there for me to drink that I don't have to wait in line in. Well, this is a, I think this is a case of people having more money than sense, right? It's entirely possible. <laughs> well, I guess that's something I don't have to worry about. <laughs> yeah. No matter how little sense I have, it'll still be more than the amount of money I have. Yeah, you and me both. You and me both, buddy. <laughs> 
Okay, let's finish up these beers, get out of here, and head over to the library, shall we, for a little bit of uh, Halloween-oriented talk. Yep, let's do that. Okay, stick around. We'll be back right after these messages. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. to the library we are surrounded by these tall stacks of books and we're going to be talking about a little bit of history here everybody knows that the original people making beer were women and that's where the term brewster comes from but there's a little bit more to it than that huh yeah and there was an interesting article that started to go around a few months back from ancientorigins.net which is a site that covers a lot of sort of ancient history some of it good some of it bad some of it you know uh better or less researched than others. But I thought this was interesting, particularly since we're right around the corner from Halloween. And it's the connection between beer brewing and witches, uh, alewives to, you know, sort of the stereotypical witch, you know, the, the crones around a cauldron saying, uh, double, double toil and trouble, fire burning cauldron bubble, you know, that sort of thing. And it literally, according to this article, at least, you know, comes from the idea that, you know, at least all the way up until early modern times when we had, you know, sort of the rise of industrialization, even early industrialization, brewing was a woman's art and brewing took place around cauldrons and that you had these alewives making up these these brews with all sorts of herbs and potions. Yeah, and they were really kind of medicine at the time. Remember that until modern times, beer and wines and whatnot were largely treated as medicine and usually spiced or resonated in such a way to, you know, deliver some sort of tonic effect in addition to drunkenness. So the <laughs> article on uh, ancient origins goes into uh, a lot about how like these women uh, kind of stepping out of sort of the traditional role for women at the time, you know, having this sort of healer role, having a, a function and role in public as opposed to just in the household and how they've you know sold their ale in public spaces and the public houses, and really then how that kind of goes, you know, some of that there's an argument that you can make the independence that was gained by these alewives would have been threatening to the patriarchal structure of the time, and because of that, you know, it sort of became a morality thing, you know, where alewives started to pick up this you know, sort of connotation and notation of being immoral or loose or, you know, somehow because they were fiercely independent, they were fiercely dangerous. Because of that running afoul of the church, uh, particularly with like the taxation on, on herbs and whatnot, it slowly morphs into the whole idea along with the healer thing of the stereotypical witch that we think of. And so you go from, you know, the good brewer to the bad witch. <laughs> yeah, you know, and the, these women uh, were seen, you know, huddling over their their cauldrons, uh, boiling stuff, steam rising up from it, uh, making a drink that uh, that 
intoxicated a man and could cause him to lose total control, you know? So, like, there's your magic potion right there. Well, and brooms, for instance, were usually a sign that you had ale available for sale. Yeah, that sort of thing. So there's a, a lot of symbological things going on there as well. But like we said, this is all historical stuff, but we thought it was kind of fun in the Halloween spirit to talk about how there's a beer and witch connection. So which witch would make you the beer that which you would drink? Oh, 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 very clever. Very clever. It's a, it's a really cool and fun article, and we will post a link to it on the website so you guys can check it out for yourself. Uh, but, hey, you know, it makes total sense to me. If it makes sense to you, it must make sense to everybody. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be a first, wouldn't it? Well, hey, we'll, we'll work with it. Yeah, right, right. Okay, enough of that. Uh, we've been erudite enough. It's time to head over to the brewery, talk about uh, some products and some recipes. So stick around, and we'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Okay, we have made our way over to the brewery. We're sitting here. The stainless steel is all polished up. We got the burners going to keep warm. And we're going to talk about some new products and some recipes, too. First thing we're going to do is mention a couple things coming out from our sponsor, Brewcraft, because we think that they're cool. One of them is the Genesis Fermenter, which is uh, kind of like a hard shell um, jug. Looks like an amphora. Uh, and, uh, it, it's cool, <laughs> right? Yeah. And you're totally right about the M4 piece, except for obviously it has a flat bottom. So think two handles on either side. And instead of finding it in the bottom of a Roman vessel carrying wine or olive oil or whatever, it's designed to hold your beer. And what's really cool about it is it's got two ways that you could use this thing because there's a screw on lid and you can either just use it straight up. Like it's a plastic fermenter, you know, just like your bucket. And carried around. So it's a little bit easier, I think, to move around than a Spiedel, but it's also got a narrower top to it. Or the other way, if you remember back to the brew file show that we did with Jay Ankeny talking about extract brewing, one of his tips was that he doesn't sanitize his, his plastic buckets, or actually, sorry, he uses plastic water bottles. He doesn't sanitize his plastic water bottles. He uses a food grade plastic liner and just basically assumes it's sanitary on the roll. Well, the Genesis has the ability to do the same thing. They actually make liners that are designed to screw into the lid. There's a port out on the top where you can put an airlock. You can screw the liner into that and drop the liner into the, the Genesis itself and fill the plastic bag and not touch the plastic fermenter itself. Yeah, and, and I think it's really cool that it's designed to be used either way. So if you're uh, 
If you're frugal, then you can uh, go with just using it without the liner. And if you want uh, convenience and ease, you can uh, put the liner in it and use that. I really like the rigidity of it, and I love the way the handles are positioned and sized. Uh, I ferment in a chest freezer, and it's way easier to lift this thing in and out of the chest freezer than any other fermenter that I've got. Yeah, it is pretty sturdy, and I'm, I'm still sticking by the amphora metaphor because it's perfect. <laughs> the amphora meta-amphora? Yes, the meta-amphora uh, amphora. Okay. The other thing that uh, Brewcraft has just released is Brutan B. Now, if you think back a, a few episodes, we uh, did an experiment with Brutan B, and uh, we both love this stuff. I, I just uh, am loath to brew without it. And it's been hard to get a hold of at the homebrew level up until now. Brewcraft is going to be carrying it, so your homebrew shop can order it from them, and you can get your hands on some. Try it yourself and see what you think. It's a, a real inexpensive thing, and uh, I really feel like like it has uh, made some real improvements in my beer in terms of clarity and flavor. Yeah, and... So remember, if your homebrew shop gets their parts from Brewcraft USA, and guess what? Your homebrew shop probably does. Have them have them call Brewcraft and put in an order. Stuff's fairly inexpensive, and we kind of think it's good insurance. And, of course, obviously, since we have talked about Brutan B again and again and again, we are going to have another set of results coming up shortly for another Brutan experiment just to see whether or not, uh, well, you know, extended aging does anything with it. Yeah, right. That's one of its uh, purported benefits, and we're going to see what our Igors have to say about that. But enough of the sponsor love. Let's talk some malt. Let's and, do. And why you need to pay attention. So, malt being one of our fundamental ingredients. And by the way, before I get too far down the field, I want to say we had had a great response to the episode that we did with Mechagrade and people talking about malt and emailing us and asking us more questions about malt, or actually even saying, hey, I've got a micro maltster in my area, so guess what? We're going to do more of that because. Apparently, everybody likes to talk some malt. You're not just all hopheads. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> How about that? Yeah. But I thought it was very interesting. There, there's a company out there, Swan Malt, and they make a whole set of uh, British malts out there. And I was trolling around one of the forums, I think it was Beer Advocate, and right. somebody, post, somebody posted up a warning. A warning about Swan Malt. And I'm, I'm just going to say that this is... A matter of make sure you read exactly what it is that you're buying and don't make assumptions. Because this person ended up buying the Swan uh, Light Munich, I believe is how they bill it. Right. And only to discover it's not actually Munich malt, it's a crystal malt. And they, bought a, and they bought a full sack. <laughs> That's a lot of crystal malt. Yeah, it is. And, you know, Swan, I don't know why you call it Light Munich, but, you know, that's your prerogative to call it what you like. It's your malt. But let this be a lesson, a caveat emptor. Uh, let the buyer beware. Make sure that when you order something, you actually read the description to you so that you know what you're getting. Well, and I think it points out to the bigger flaw is we have a tendency to think that names mean something. We like for names to mean something. It indicates, well, it implies some order to the universe. Well, names names don't always mean something. Well, right, like Northeast IPA. That's not an IPA. We're not going there. <laughs> but I already did. Yeah, well, I'm not going there. So it's okay. just you. It's a solo journey. All right. All right. And then finally, I think 
we have to go back and revisit. You remember a couple episodes back, we had our friends over at Groundbaker on uh, to talk uh, beer recipes and gluten-free because, you know, we had that question about, you know, some of the gluten-free stuff. And, of course, we had no clue how to answer it because Denny and I are not gluten-free type people. We were very glutenful. Right. So we asked uh, my buddy James Newmeister on, the, the founder and uh, head brewmaster at, uh, at Groundbreaker. And he came on and gave us some of his tips for brewing gluten-free beers. And they have just made it even easier because Groundbreaker has released uh, gluten-free homebrew recipes on their website. Uh, so if you're into gluten-free brewing, we'll put that link up on our website and you can go check out their recipes. And let me just say right now, uh, if you've tried gluten-free brewing before and it didn't go too well for you, you might want to try these. Uh, Groundbreaker has won a medal at the GABF every year that they have entered for, I think it's the last eight years or something like that. So these guys know their stuff. Uh, their beers are so good that you wouldn't know they were gluten-free unless somebody told you they were. And actually, I mean, truthfully, we, we sort of missed on this because James came on the show back June and... They posted this recipe in June for the Groundbreaker Homebrew Pale Ale. It's an APA, and it uses the sorghum syrup that you can find, lentils, uh, kashi, and beet sugar, and a whole buttload of Cascades in order to make Mm, your nice little pale ale there. So given Groundbreaker's reputation, I think this is really awesome, and I'm kind of sad that we missed it when it first came out. But here we are, better late than never. Go ahead and give this a try. You know, if you don't want to bother with gluten reduced or you just want to play around with something different, because I mean, how often are you going to get to play around with kashi and lentils in your beer? <laughs> Good point. Good point. Go play. Go play. All right. Well, I think that's enough brewing for right now. So shall we go lounge? Yes, I think it's time to head over to the lounge and listen to a chat that we had with Brian Pierce of YCH Hops. It's all about the hops. It's all about the hops. We'll see you at the hop. Stick around. We'll be right back. (laughs) Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaca you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaca wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time. It's time to lounge. It's time to lounge. And maybe not talk about beer, but talk about one of our favorite things about beer, which is the hop. And we're going to talk with, well, an expert in hops. So, Denny. Introduce the fella. Yeah, uh, we had a chat with Brian Pierce of YCH Hops last June when we were at the uh, Homebrew Con in Minneapolis, and he kind of gave us a little fill-in there. But now that 
Cryo hops are actually available for home brewers, and it's a great product. We wanted to have Brian back on and talk a little bit more about cryo hops, get some tips about how to use them, ask him about what's new and hot in the hop world and what YCH has coming up for the next year. Now, is there a new hop variety that's coming out that everybody wants to pay attention to? Are there new hop products? Well, you're just going to go have to listen. (laughs) That's right. So sit back, grab yourself a beer if you're not driving, and listen to this chat with Brian Pierce, the Director of North American Sales for YCH Hops. Okay, we have Mr. Brian Pierce from YCH Hops on the phone with us today. Brian is the Director of North American Sales for YCH. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, man. We really appreciate it. Uh, So we have what we hope are going to be some insightful questions, and if they're not, then just kind of like answer them as if they were. (laughs) Sounds good. We can do that. So, Drew, kick it off there. Yeah, so I guess this is harvest season, so the natural question I'm going to ask is, how's the harvest going? How's the crop looking this year? Oh, good. Yeah, so actually, you know, as of today, we have a lot of the picking facilities are, are, are either shut down or shutting down. Um, this is pretty much the end of the season, so at this point, we have a pretty good idea of how things are. And um, I have to say, overall, it's been a, a really, really great harvest season. Um, see a lot of yields on a lot of different varieties are above average or right where they need to be. Um, so I don't, I don't anticipate any major shortages of any varieties or anything like that. Um, and, I, and I have to say, too, the, the quality of this year has just been outstanding. Um, I know, you know, for us, we every single lot that we get in from a farm, uh, we do sensory on it, and, uh, you know, smelling all the different varieties this year, there's just, I haven't seen too many or smelled too many that are, are just outstandingly bad. <laughs> they're, all, they're all pretty nice. Um, so I, I'm really impressed with this year's harvest. I'm, a couple lots in particular, I'm really excited to see how they're going to end up in beer. So. so which lots are those, and how can we get our hands on some of those? You know, it's a special care package. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we should do something like that. We uh, we actually, we, what we're trying to do with some of the really outstanding ones this year um, is make sure we kind of tag them or earmark them and run them uh, as single lots that are out there and available for a lot of people to have access to them. So um, hopefully we'll get some of those into some of the, the homebrew size packaging as well. Oh, that, that'd be interesting. That, that's kind of like taking the whole single barrel, single cask idea just a little bit further. You know, look, we've got not only, not only varietal, but now we have a single lot for your enjoyment. I, I heard a rumor that this yeah. was an exceptionally good year for Centennial. Is that true? Yeah, that's. I mean, from from my perspective, yeah, that is. I mean, it Centennial is, is such a, a fickle variety. It's 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 hard to grow for the farms. It's it's hard to keep in good quality. Um, it does not age very well. Um, so it's it's always a challenge. Of you know, it gets harvested early. It needs to get processed early. Uh, it needs to get handled early. And uh, but no, this year. It, Coming in, the lots have all smelled really nice. Um, like I said, a lot of them are really very true to what I would expect Centennial to smell like. Oh, great. Which is nice. Yeah, not a lot of variation, um, but a lot of what you want from it. And, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's in good place. And really, our, our production has been hitting uh, pelletizing and, and packaging uh, pretty hard on Centennial so that it's all, all kept in good condition, vacuum sealed, the way, you know, in the cold. Um, probably probably going to be done with it earlier than we have ever been. So, uh, Bodes well for Centennial this year. That's great. So 
I've I've been to Hop and Brew School several times and had the the great opportunity to like see the whole process from the time that they're picked in the fields to the time you guys get them and and process them. But not everybody else has. So could you kind of like give a quick description of of what happens at harvest time? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, generally things begin out in the field and you'll have uh, your top cutters and bottom cutters will be cutting all the binds right off of the uh, right off the poles, put in trucks, and then they're sent over to uh, what's usually referred to in the hop industry as the picking facility, um, which is which is always a, a building where the hops are then actually separated from the binds. Um, I think that's important because picking, in, in my mind, and in a lot of other agriculture, means is getting it out of the field. Uh, but in hops, it means getting getting the cones separated from the binds. Um, and then from the picking facility, they'll get uh, kiln dried. You know, which usually, depending on the variety, the temperatures and times can vary a little bit. Um, but generally, they'll get they'll get dried over the course of you know part of a day to sometimes a whole day. Um, and then from there, they'll get moved over um, to a baling room where they'll actually sit for quite a bit of time in these just mountains of hops. And the goal with that is to try to equalize the moisture throughout the whole the whole pile so that some maybe that were dried a little further than other ones, um, they can kind of get an equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, it's baled. Uh, so they usually go through a compression baling. Um, they'll get filled up into these sacks, which are, it's really neat because they're all, for the most part, still hand-sewn. Um, and so the bales are usually about 200 pounds. Uh, and then the bales will get loaded on a truck, and that's where they make their way over to, you know, YCH hops. Um, and that's really where kind of the, the production side of it exists. Um, is we'll take those, we'll, we'll get them off of a truck, and we'll get them stored in cold storage right away. Um, and then from there, we'll pull them out, and we start running pellet runs, and we'll, we'll take them, and we'll run them through our, our pellet line. Um, or we could, what we usually refer to as EVAC, where we'll take uh, full bales, and we'll actually pretty much chop them up into smaller smaller sizes, uh, so for most of the, uh, the brewing industry, it's quarter bales and mini bales, uh, which is 50-pound bales or 11-pound bales. Um, and then the reason why we call it evac is they get sealed in a mylar foil and the oxygen gets evacuated out of them. So oh, right. They become flushed with nitrogen and sealed so that the, the, the cones aren't degrading any further. Because when they're in a bale, they're in a, either like a plastic material or like a, in a, like a burlap. And so they still have exposure to oxygen until they get processed. So... Um, you know, you get whole hops in, uh, what percentage just kind of like on average of the hops that you ship out remain as whole hops? How much goes to pellets? How much goes to cryo? Is, is there a, a, a set amount for all those? Um, a lot of it depends, you know, in the, in the brewing world, especially a lot of, a lot of business is done on contracts. So a lot of it will depend on the contract it needs for the year. But a, a general, a, a good kind of number out there would I, that I would say is, you know, for the T90 pellets, that usually makes up about 80 to 85% of all the, the hops that are used. Right. Um, everything else then kind of breaks out into smaller percentages for, for cryo, our cryo hops, and for whole cone hops, and CO2 extract kind of all exist in that other part of the, the pie. Well, I just want to go back to the uh, the harvest question real quick. I know that you said that the centennial is coming out really great this year, and it seems like one perennial worry that a lot of our listeners have and a lot of brewers have is, hey, you know, some of these hops seem to give out these sort of oniony, garlicky type flavors sometimes, depending year to year. How's the, is the harvest looking good from that perspective as well? Because, I mean, I know there are people who are like, I don't want to – I literally had a listener email us and say, I don't want to make an IPA that's going to be all oniony and cheesy. What's happening? Sure, sure. Yeah, and that's uh, – I, I would say, you know, generally 
just from all the sensory I've, I've done this year and kind of the feedback we've received from a lot of our brewers, um, I've seen a lot less of that than I think would be what I've seen in the past. Um, some of that comes down to some farm practices and kilning and storage here even at our facility um, can have an effect on that. But overall, I've seen a lot less of it coming in uh, from that onion-garlic perspective mm-hmm. um, than, than I think you'd normally see. So it, it, I guess, like I said, it's, it's been a really good year in a way where I've just been kind of blown away by all the different, all the different varieties we've gotten in. That's cool. And, and of course, obviously, as the business has gone on and these new more aroma-specific hops have sort of grown in as an important part of the whole thing, obviously, you guys are changing your, your techniques and how things get harvested and how things get processed in order to actually keep everything up in tip-top shape all the way until it actually hits the kettle. So, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I, you know, I, the way we always look at it is, you know, once they're picked, they're, they're sort of just on that downward decline from there. Right. You know, they're, they're picked at the peak of what they're going to be. And so the longer it takes for us to handle them and process them and, and the storage conditions they're in, they're, they're just kind of degrading. Um, and granted, some varieties very slow. It's not like it's, you know, overnight they're turning bad. But um, So we're always trying to maximize everything so that we're, we're kind of pick, hitting them as high as we can at their, the best quality. Um, anything we're doing is really not improving their quality. We're just capturing it where it's at. Mm-hmm. You try, try to put it in stasis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I've been I, I've been playing with uh, your cryo hops uh, lately, and that is like something that I guess I saw it a couple years ago there at Hop and Brew School when you guys were just starting to get into those. Um, have they been uh, becoming pretty popular? Yeah, cryo hops is uh, it's been a really exciting product for us. Just. Um, it's generated a lot of excitement last year when we launched it kind of out officially to the world. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's growing quite a bit. Um, it's been a really exciting time uh, in the sense that, you know, as we've gone through this harvest season, we have our selections going on with brewers coming to visit and giving us a lot of feedback on the lots and looking at what they want to use for their brewing year. Um, and it's, it's neat to see that most breweries come and they're like, hey, can I, let's talk about getting cryo on my contract or let's, let's, how do I get my hands on some more of this or what are you guys when are you guys going to have this variety ready this year? Um, it's pretty neat to see a lot of people are, uh, are, are liking it, adopting it. And, and in a lot of cases, I've seen, too, a lot of people are starting to uh, replace, replace existing recipes with cryo hops uh, with our lupulin powder. So, um, yeah, it's, it's growing, and, and we're really growing with it, too. You know, we, we uh, invested quite a bit in a, a bigger plant this year to, to try to, to get a lot more capacity so we could provide a lot more to the industry. Right. Um, that, that's up and running now. Um, and... Uh, so it's it's an exciting time. And so for people who maybe aren't familiar with cryo hops, why don't you tell them about uh, what they are and how they're made? Sure. So so cryo hops is we will actually take whole cone hops um, and we'll run them through uh, a process that we've developed. And, and what that process is is we will actually take the hops um, and we flash freeze them with liquid nitrogen, and then we'll fractionate them or. Basically, we separate them, and what we do is that we get to really cold temperatures, and so we're actually, um, as we break them apart, it's really easy for us to separate out all the lupulin glands from all of the leaf material. Um, and so what you end up with is actually two different products. You end up with, that we, that are all under our cryohops name, is, is you end up with lupulin powder, um, which we'll then take and pelletize into lupulin pellets, and then we also end up with the bittered leaf, well, which is the kind of the leaf fraction um, and so the, what you do by doing that is all the lupulin pretty much becomes concentrated. It's no longer being diluted by the, the cone and leaf material. Um, so you end up with, uh, you know, if you've ever seen any of our cryo-hop packaging or, or had any experience with it, you'll see that the alpha acids are usually <laughs> <Insane>. about double. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. It's like yeah. the, I, I had a 
pack, I guess a pack of Simcoe or something I used recently, I was looking at it, it's like 22.46% alpha acid, and it's like, whoa! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just so concentrated. And the, and the really cool thing is, you know, the alpha is really is really high, but really what what it's geared for is, is aroma and flavor. Right. Know, the oil in there is, is also just as, as concentrated. Um, so it's really great for really late kettle additions, you know, if you want to do something in your whirlpool or flame out. Um, and then also for dry hopping, which is kind of neat because, you know, we, we have other very concentrated products like CO2 extract, um, but it's not really meant for dry hopping. And so this is a really diverse product where you can use it anywhere you really want to build flavor and aroma. Um, it's neat, too, without the leaf material. It, it isn't making nearly as much troop, so you're, you're getting a little more efficiency in your brew. Um, and you have to worry about contact time a little less as well, especially for dry hopping. Um, you know, you don't have all the leaf material sitting on your, on your beer now. Right. So... Right. So um, you mentioned the, the debittered leaf. Uh, let's talk about that for a minute, because I've got some, and I'm not exactly sure what the heck to do with it. So sure, what, sure. What, what do you recommend uh, as uses for the debittered leaf? So debittered leaf is really neat, because I think, you know, lupulin, uh, it, the lupulin 2 that we have is, is really, um, it's really the big flashy, exciting thing. It's all the flavor. It's all the aroma. And I think the debittered leaf kind of, it doesn't get the spotlight it deserves in a lot of ways. Um, the neat thing about debittered leaf is there's just a natural efficiency in our cryo process. And so the debittered leaf still retains about 2 to 3% alpha. Um, so it's, it's a nice low alpha kind of version of, of what it came from. So, for example, if we ran Simcoe, um, the debittered leaf is still going to have some of the, the flavor and aroma characteristics of Simcoe. But because it's mostly cone material, it's still going to have what I... It's almost like what I would describe as like a Northwest Noble. It has a lot of the, the earthy sort of uh, floral kind of notes you would expect of maybe a Noble variety. Um, and so the neat thing is it has, has some brewing values still in, in uses for maybe not so hot forward beers, uh, things like lagers and, and maybe Saisons. And, um, and so it's, it's kind of got a, a use that I don't think is immediately apparent, but it's, it's actually it's really great for all those things. And um, I know, I know for myself, I've, I've used it quite a bit in, in kind of those applications. I've been really happy with it. So, um, would you would you recommend it as a finishing hop, like the uh, like the pellets? Um, you you could, you know, I, I, I think what I, I generally have used it for is a little bit more of the bittering addition, or maybe uh-huh. later later in the kettle where you're going to get some flavor, but you're still you're still going to be you know kind of building up some IBUs as well. Right. Um, one one of my favorite uses for it actually, and it's something we're we're planning on. Um, Really expanding research on is um, using it in mash hopping. So I, I actually a lot of times when I use debittered leaf, I actually put it in my mash. Wow, and um, you, and you actually get something out of it that way, huh? Because when yeah, I've done mash yeah, hopping before, I, it seemed to just not work for me at all. Yeah, yeah. I, I usually I usually build some IBUs just because it's it's almost like you get it in there, um, and really the, the main reason I've been doing that is because it is so leafy. Is I, I don't want all of that in my kettle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a way for me to, to pick up a lot of what, what's in it for the alpha acids and what's left of the oils um, and get it into my wort. But then I get it over the kettle without all the actual physical leaf material. Interesting. Um, yeah, and I, I, I've usually found I, I still get a – I guess it depends on your times and the time you're boiling and everything. But I, I, I found I usually get about 15 IBUs per pound per barrel. Okay. Um, kind of my, my rough, rough <laughs> numbers. Um, obviously, that will change a little bit depending on what you're doing at home and what equipment you have. Right, right. Um, but I mean that's right. Well, we're, we're very familiar <laughs> <Yeah>. with that. <laughs> sure, sure. But I mean, I I do have to say, you know, I, that that's what I find using using my eight gallon kettle at home. You know what I mean? And 
and mashing in my my Home Depot water coolers. So, right. Um, that's that's uh, that's kind of the rule I stick to. I, I've done some lab analysis on some of those beers, and they, they're generally pretty close to where it comes out to. Cool. That well, that's good to know, man. And, and yeah, cool. it, it gives me an idea of what to do with these samples I've got here because I was kind of staring at them, going, "I I don't have a lot," so I wanted to put them in at a place where I could actually tell what was going on with them. Sure, sure. Yeah, and Denny, yeah, pro- right, Denny yeah, problems. Yeah. Right, right. Well, hey, so let me let me ask. So we've talked like the you know sort of the new exciting developments and things like the deep bittered leaf and the cryo hops and of course obviously I mean, now everything's crazy with all these new hop varieties coming out are there any new things that brewers should be watching out for this year that's going to be coming from YCH? Um, i think some of the biggest things are really you know we're we're really wanting to continue to to really keep the excitement going for our lupulin products um, we have some cool plans in the works for some stuff hopefully for the spring for lupulin um so, I don't know how much I can uh, divulge on that, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's okay, gonna be exciting. Man. Yeah, well, but we're but we're we're, oh, we're we're wanting to keep it going. I think we got we got a really cool product, and we want to keep developing it and making it, uh, getting to maybe some new varieties and blends and things like that. So, um, I, I think that's gonna be really exciting. I was gonna say, look, if you want to tell us, nobody <laughs> listens to this podcast, so you can just tell it's us. Just yeah. three of us right now. Yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> r- yeah, right. And the the other thirty or forty thousand people won't pay any attention when we get to this part. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I have to tell you, man, when I was there for Hop and Brew School and I saw the beginning of the cryo hops happening, I was just really excited by how innovative that was. So I'm I'm even more excited to see where else you're going with new products. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess another exciting thing for us is we're we're still really looking, you know, CO two extract is really coming into its own in a lot of ways in the craft industry. Um and so we're really looking to expand that as well as the homebrew market. I know, I know there's some things out there already, but we're, we're looking at getting that out there and available and um, really experimenting around right now, too, with some, some new ways of packaging and making that easier to use. Great. Um, I think, I think there would be a lot of excitement in the homebrew market for something like that. I see a lot of questions on forums and stuff about that kind of thing, and it's just not available for people. Yeah, it's just it's not as accessible and available as I think it needs to be. So, and that and that's something we've been really really yeah. looking towards right. well for the next year. Or so, well, and and some of the current forms are that that are available if you go and buy like say a hundred grams of them tend to be a little difficult to use. They tend to have a, a reputation of staining your kettles and not wanting to actually go in the beer. Yeah, yeah, it's so. uh, you know even even on a even on a larger scale, it's uh, it's a. It's a product that definitely has uh, some learning along with it. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's not necessarily as straightforward as throwing pellets into a kettle. Sometimes, um, I would say one of the dude. I don't want to learn. I want to brew beer. Yeah, I would say one of the biggest things. You know, because I, I, I've seen some of that feedback too. And I, I obviously we don't have one of those products out there being used that way necessarily at the moment. But um, I, one of the biggest things I find with CO two extract is so important is to make sure that it's warm when it's going in your kettle. Um, if it's not, it's going to end up all over the right. sides of your kettle. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been there, man. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it needs it needs some pre warming, not boiling, nothing like that. It just it needs to be at a, a pretty nice temperature so that it's not this you know cold or room temperature, very viscous oil jumping into a boiling boiling you know aqueous solution. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've had friends who have had good luck dissolving it in say vodka as well before adding oh, it. Oh sure. But even then. <laughs> 
So is there going to be a a new hot hop that people should be looking for? I mean, like it seems like every year or so there's something new that people go, ooh, that's got a weird number, and I don't know anything about it. Sure. No, I must yeah, have it. I mean, there's, there's quite a few experimental varieties out there that are, are gaining some traction. I, I, I think one of the, the big ones, though, this year that already has a name um, that I think will really be exciting for everyone is Laurel. Um, you know, it was it was HBC 291, and it actually got its its official name last year in 2016 for the hop harvest, um, right in time for hop harvest, actually. And I know going to HomebrewCon this last year, uh, it seems like a lot of, of, of people are, are still not fully aware of it. And so uh, this year, you know, we, there's even more of it in the world, and it's, it's a, just a awesome hop. I, I, it's, it's, I, I always describe it as just, it's just beautiful, the, the flavor and the aroma. Um, it's, it's a really neat hop in the fact that it, it has some sort of uh, – what I consider sort of like noble lineage, but it's also, it has a lot of that American flavor to it as well. So um, it's neat in the way that I've had some really awesome single hop laurel lagers, and then I've had some really awesome single hop laurel IPAs. You know, it's, yeah. just, it's a really, it's a really diverse hop. Um, it has a lot of like uh, citrus and sort of like a lemongrass notes, but it can have some dark fruit. Um, it's a peppery notes. And so it's just, it's a really neat hop. I feel like if you, you have a creative mind and you can use it in a lot of different ways. You can be really happy with it in a lot of different beers. Wow. You know what? I think I have some uh, Laurel cryo hops sitting in my freezer. I'm going to have to uh, work those into a brew here real soon. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's great. And that's, that's something too, that that'll continue. Laurel will be available in cryo moving forward. So for the lupulin um, and for debittered leaf. So um, if it's, it, I would definitely be out looking for that this year. It's, it's really neat. Um, I, I really like mixing it with a couple other hops for dry hopping or even like real late additions uh, in my IPAs. Um, I've actually used the Laurel Debittered Leaf before mash hopping to make a uh, to make a saison. Um, I was really happy with that. So it's it's just it's a really diverse hop. I think it's pretty exciting. Drew, he said saison. I know. Trust me, my <laughs> my ears instantly turn on that word. Drew is the master of saison. So uh, yeah. Well, we got to try the Laurel in there. See see what you think. Oh yeah, yeah no, I, I just got to get some more time in the brewery first, <laughs> yeah, sure. which is yeah, everybody's really, problem. All these podcasts seems to uh, eat up a whole lot of our time, man. It's like I I have grain ready to brew, and it's like okay, now when can I actually use that? So. Yeah. So, you know, I have really enjoyed Hop and Brew School the last few years when I've been up there for it. It's it's a wonderful thing you guys do. And I know that uh, you've changed the format on it a little bit. So uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what Hop and Brew School is and what it's going to look like uh, in the future. Sure. So Hop and Brew School is uh, it's a really neat event that we've had going on for quite a few years now. And uh, it it's it's a great time for uh, brewers and home brewers alike to come and, and visit the valley, um, see the harvest season in full swing, um, be able to go visit and, and actually meet and, and speak with farmers, um, as well as, as uh, get to see a lot of really interesting and exciting speakers um, with all different all sort of all different uh, takes on the industry. Some are brewers, sometimes people are working in labs. Um, just kind of you know we've had people come and talk about yeast and, and uh, wild fermentation and all sorts of things. So. It's a really neat time. Uh, it's usually a, a, we have two sessions. It's uh, you know we historically we've always had a, a commercial brewer session uh, and then followed by a homebrew session. And uh, this last year we we actually did not have the homebrew session uh, simply because the craft industry is really becoming a, re- a really large global movement. And uh, we we really wanted to make sure that international brewers had access uh, to Hop and Brew School. And that's 
it's kind of been a gap, honestly, for us for a while. Uh, we've always had a lot of international people reach out. It's usually either too late or we're, or we're full or they can't make it in the, the time frames we have established. Um, so we, we ended up doing the international one this year, which was a really neat event. Uh, but we are looking, moving forward, at having the homebrew, uh, the homebrew session back next year, and we'll be doing it every other year from, from here on out. Cool. I was uh, I was down in Chile uh, in July and mentioned to several of the brewers I ran into there about Hop and Brew School, and I wouldn't be surprised if you saw uh, quite a number of people from South America showing up next year. No, oh, I, I believe it. You know, even the last two years, we, we've had a lot of lot of interest uh, in South America and Mexico. So it's a really burgeoning brewing scene down there, man. I'm just blown away when I go down there. It it's like they are really, really totally into it. They're maybe like a few years behind us, but considering that the whole craft beer thing in South America is so new, what they've done is really assimilated all the info that we've been putting out and they're moving forward at a really rapid pace down there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's, uh, that's interesting you say that. that I, that's something we've talked a lot about here is, is, you know, we we're, we're very involved in some of those markets and we see that it reminds me of what the craft industry was maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, exactly. That, but but I would agree with they're growing at a much faster rate. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's because they have such great. There's a great precedence out there for it. There's so much information available, and you know even the, the hop industry itself has grown and is, is much more available than it was maybe at the birth of the the North American craft scene. Yeah, and I know that there are a few places down there growing hops, but I think that that's uh, one of the things that everybody is crying for down there is uh, more access to better quality American hops. Now, let me ask, so speaking of how the market's changing, uh, in the past, it's always been like with the hop market being an agricultural market and you know taking multiple years in order to get a, a new field up online and actually yielding uh, hops, there's always kind of been this sort of, I have to stare into a crystal ball and gauge how many hops I'm going to need in the future. And that's part of the reason for contracts and all that sort of stuff to help. But there's been a lot of times, and people will remember the hop crisis of a couple of years ago, where suddenly it was like, no hops available, a lot of people had ripped hops out, and now, you know, oh, the hops are now 30 bucks a pound, or whatever it became. Do you feel like with where the craft beer market's been moving, and like where the global market is now, and how that's developing, that we may have finally escaped some of that cycle, where there's going to be a decent enough demand that it's going to be easy to sort of map that growth cycle in? Yeah, you know. Or are we, are we in for a ride no, still? No, you know, I, I think that, I mean, it, we, you know, we are an agricultural commodity in the hop industry. So, I mean, there's, there's always going to be things that are outside of the, the control of the growers and of suppliers. Um, you know, we could, you know, if you look a couple of years ago, we had some really bad drought years um, and it had some large effects um, here in the Yakima Valley as, as well as even overseas. Um, so there, there's always things that we can't necessarily plan for or, or we could plan for, but just don't have total control over. Um, but, I, but I think barring those kind of events, um, the hop industry is in a really healthy place from, from our perspective. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of supply out there. I, I know that's been a, a really big uh, sort of media topic recently that I've seen kind of on just even mainstream media. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, the sort of throw it out there that there's maybe more hops than there's needed um, but, but, you know, really the North, the North American market's really healthy. And I, I think what, what gets missed a lot in those sort of, um, stories or that perspective is that the international beer scene overall is, is still growing. There's craft is really popping up, you know, kind of like we're just talking about South America. Um, it, there's really, it seems like that going on all over the world and they don't necessarily have the, the, 
the readable access to these hops. And uh, so there, there's a lot of demand out there still that, that is actually feeling undersupplied uh, internationally. Um, I think a lot of brewers here or, or even home brewers in North America would feel like they could probably get their hands on most things they're looking for that are domestic varieties, but um, that's not necessarily the case everywhere in the world. So um, that's, and that's kind of a big focus for YCH hops right now is really that, that international market um, getting out there, getting to those people who who are looking for great, you know, great, awesome American aroma hops, and um, and even even their bittering hops. So there's just there's a lot here, and it, there's a lot we can still provide. So, so and you know something that has always fascinated me about YCH is that it's not some big impersonal corporation or something out there, you know, spewing hops out to brewers, right? Uh, what I have always dug about it is that YCH is kind of like a conglomeration of the families that are actually growing the hops, right? Yeah, that's that's really what is, is so neat. And actually, even for myself, what really attracted me to, to working here is is it's uh, – it, we're a grower-owned company. You know, we have we we work for farms. I I always look at what I do is, on a day-to-day basis is I'm really just an extension of the farms. You know, um, a lot of it, we're very different than a lot of uh, what it's, you know our competitors or other people who are buying and selling hops. Is that most of most of the money we make uh, selling hops goes back into the farm industry. Um, you know, we don't we don't have we don't just collect a, a bunch of profit on a, a lot of it. A lot of it is trickled back to the farm so that they can build the infrastructure and keep up with the demands that are out there and and make sure that they're you know building up their quality programs and constantly kind of pushing the envelope of of you know getting getting new varieties out in the world and, and maintaining really high quality um, and making sure that you know even even from a you know building new facilities to to pick more efficiently so that. Hops aren't hanging out in the bind too long and kind of missing their picking windows. Um, all that, all that is really where our efforts end up going here at YCH Hops. Um, it's really neat, and you know we really stick to our missions and visions and values. And one of the biggest ones is always, you know, we're we're trying to connect the the uh, the greatest brewers in the world and making the best beer with the the best hop growers in the world. And I think it's it's a really neat uh, approach to the hop industry that hasn't always been that open and that transparent. Um, and hasn't always wanted brewers and growers talking to each other. Um, and that's that's and really that's something that we we want. We we facilitate that as much as we can. Um, a lot of our things like Hop and Brew School, a lot of those events are there to cater to that and to make sure that we are making those connections for for the industry. And that um, it it just I think it's so neat to see when you see a, a brewery picks hops from a specific farm, and that farmer knows, oh, that beer maybe maybe halfway across the world is being made with hops grown right here. Um, and then they come out and visit, and they get to know each other, and um, it's just a, it's a really neat connection that, to to be there and facilitate. So. One of the things that I enjoyed most about Hop and Brew School was going out and visiting the farms, and really seeing the passion that all these farmers have. I mean, these guys are just totally into what they do and how to make it better and more interesting. And that is, that's really cool. They're not just growing these hops as a commodity; they're really committed to what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, it's so neat too. A lot of our the family farms that we, we work with, or that our grower ownership have been doing it for four or five generations. Um, you know, we actually we uh, were actually doing a, a really cool filling project earlier during the the harvest season. I, mean, I was talking to one of our families here, um, the Smith family, and uh, talking talking to them, and they they told me, oh yeah, this is actually our 86th harvest season in our family. Wow. Like, ah, it's mind-blowing <laughs> to think. <laughs> they've been you know, growing you know, hops five for... generations, but yeah. you really put that into how many years that is. 86 um, years they've been growing hops, huh? 
Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's that's almost as old as you, Denny. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) nearly. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's just neat to to put it in that kind of perspective, and then you know you see the passion and the excitement about what they're doing, and uh, it's kind of neat because you know you you think eighty six years ago they were doing it before it was cool, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Before before people were excited, but people still need a beer. But yeah, right, exactly. Drew, you, you got anything else? Yeah, one one last question before we let you go and go off and deliver hops to people. So we know that the IPA is kind of the king of the craft beer world, right? And that's very good for hop growers and hop farms because, you know, the craft beer IPA takes a lot of hops. I mean, I remember going and seeing a batch of Bud Light being brewed one year, and they were filling up a trash can, you know, like one of those trash cans on wheels with hops for a 400-barrel batch. And it was a bear covering over the bottom of the 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 trash can and i looked at that and i realized i've seen craft brewers on a seven barrel range using four to five times the amount of hops that are in this little trash can for a 400 barrel batch of bud light so the ipa and craft beer in general is great for for hop growers and, and for ych but the way it's getting utilized a lot, you know, it leads people to kind of have a one-dimensional image of the hop. Is there something that you wish that uh, kind of building on what you were talking about before about like using the debittered leaf in sort of unusual ways? Is there something that you wish that uh, brewers would explore with the product just other than say, I've made another IPA or a pale ale or a double IPA or a triple IPA or a quintuple IPA? Yeah, I think two things. I think, you know, one, you know, kind of talking about that hop usage is, you know, we've kind of seen that really... Uh, the emergence of the New England style IPA or the hazy IPAs, um, and I think that's you know just pushing that envelope even further. Where maybe on a professional scale, you know, some of your IPAs would maybe be at that like two, three pounds per barrel. Um, you know, and now you're seeing people. I, I've even heard of, I've heard of people putting up to five to seven pounds per barrel in some of these really hazy IPAs, which is which is great, right? It's great for the hop industry. Um, but I, I think for kind of going in a, like you're saying in another direction. Um, my mind immediately goes to our debitter leaf product, uh, where there's there's a ton of value in something that is maybe not um, what you're thinking of when you're thinking of IPAs and parallels. You know, I've when we first launched Cryo, I remember um, actually being at the Craft Brew Conference in Washington D.C. this last year, and um, kind of ex- like we were talking earlier about explaining how we make it. And uh, I had several brewers ask me, so. What, what's that other stuff then? Is that just the garbage? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh no, it has so much value and. And, you know, and, and the, the neat thing with the, with the bitter leaf and being able to maybe make some, you know, not so hot forward beers, um, is, is the price point as well. You know, it's, it's a local hop. Um, it's, it's part of a process we're already making. And so it's priced really favorably compared, you know, and you could be using it in, in, in place of hops that maybe generally would be sourced from Europe, um, at, at a much higher price point. So I, I think, you know, for me, Kind of my wish would be that you know, and I and I know it's happening. You know, I, you see a lot of craft brewers are starting to make, uh, they're starting to make their you know light summer ales and, and lagers and and you know kind of kind of almost bleeding into that scene of what people would consider bigger beer a little bit. Um, and I, I think that the bitter leaf is is really going to be uh, have a really bright future in that sort in that beer style that people are starting to, to kind of sort of starting to latch on to now. So it kind of give you a way to get that, uh, get American hot characters in the beer, but without the sort of usual corresponding American bitterness. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of, you. I, like I said, it, I, I, we kind of jokingly call it the Northwest Noble, um, just because I, you can use it in pretty much all the places you would normally use a Noble variety. 
Um, but it also has some uniqueness to it, too, where, you know, if, if you're using citra debated leaf, you're still going to get those really light, you know, kind of pleasant faint hints of citrus and orange. And, um, you know, if the Simcoa could have some of that pine in it and some fruit. And so it's a, it's a, it's pretty, it's a pretty neat sort of unique thing, and I, I'm hoping people will continue to find the value in it. I know it's something we'll be really trying to kind of get out educationally this year to a lot of people is just the value and what, how you can use it. And, uh, we even have some experimentation going on with two. I think it, the bitter leaf is a really good candidate, possibly for aging hops as well for sour beers. Oh, interesting. Um, things like that. So, um, it, I think it's going to have a really cool place. I just don't think it's it's fully realized yet. Well, man, I hope to see you at uh, Hop and Brew School uh, next Labor Day weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm excited for the. Uh, I will be there, and I'm excited for the the homebrew conference coming back or the the homebrew uh, session coming back again. That's right. I guess um, I guess we'll see you in Portland in June too. Well, uh, for, yeah, for the homebrew con too. So yeah, yeah, we'll be there too. So, but I know for I'm excited for the the homebrew session. You know, after. Not having it this year, we miss it, and I know there's a lot of people who are excited to come back, and uh, we're really we're working on some really cool plans to change it up a little bit this year, too, and add some new things that, if, you, if you've come before, you probably haven't experienced. Great. Well, I, I know that uh, Gary Glass and I were both saying how disappointed we were we weren't going to get to go this year, so please have us back next year. Oh, yes, we definitely will be. <laughs> cool, man. So we have been talking to Brian Pierce, the Director of North American Sales for YCH Hops up in Yakima, about everything they're doing, new hop varieties, the Cryo hops, uh, both the uh, Lupulin 2 pellets and the uh, debittered leaf. Brian, thanks so much for your time today, man. We really appreciate you being here with us. Oh, absolutely. It's always a, always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Cool. Well, thanks, and we'll see you soon. Yep, absolutely. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Man, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to make some hoppy beers. Yeah, I got myself some cryo hops over here. I want to get some of that debittered leaf. I'm I'm totally digging on the idea of taking one of the newfangled American hops and trying them in a saison, but with the debittered leaf. You know, kind of to see if we can't get some of that noble esque character. Yeah, and I was I was fascinated to hear Brian talk about mash hopping because I've tried it in the past and didn't really feel like it did much. But I am definitely going to try it once again with some of this debittered leaf, and maybe uh, I'll find out what I've been missing. It sounds like it could be just the thing for my American Mild recipe that I've been trying to get together for the last couple years. Yeah, I'll believe that you are going to make an American Mild when I actually get to taste it. So maybe by next summer at Portland, you'll have some American Mild on, and I can have some. That's, you know, that maybe so. That's a good goal to shoot for, so I'll try and do that. Yeah. Oh, it- and you know, here, here we go. Here, here's our here's our homebrew con promise for PDX, because I know some of my club members are going to be driving up to PDX. They'll be bringing kegs. Let's make sure that we each have some American Mild and some debittered leaf saison for people to try. I think that's a great idea, man. Uh, I will commit to that right now. Yes, I, I, I solemnly swear upon upon my heart that I will do it. Yeah, right. Well, my heart isn't worth enough to do that, so. Uh... <laughs> We hope that uh, you all enjoyed that talk with Brian Pierce. Uh, We know that we did, and uh, we'll be hearing more from Brian and YCH throughout the year as hoppy things happen. In the meantime, though, we're going to take a little break here, and when we come back, we're going to wrap up the show with some Q&A, a quick tip, and something other than beer. So please stick around. (laughs) 
It's our favorite part of the show. It's time for us to prove whether or not we have what it takes to be considered homebrew experts, or maybe whether or not we can just BS our way through enough things to sound like we're homebrew experts. I vote for the second. Yeah, it's Q&A time. We've got another lineup of questions here. So, Mr. Dincenzo, why don't you start with our first one? All righty. Drew's going to take this one. And this is from, looks like, Marion.win via email. Hi there. Just been reading your article about the Cezanne yeast and mixing the White Lab and Y-Yeast strains to give a true DuPont-style brew. I know this might be a daft question. Did you just pitch both at the same time in a starter or add them at different stages? When in doubt, I am lazy. So the answer to this question is, I pitched them both at the same time. I made two equal-sized starters, uh, basically used a quart each of my starter wort that I pre-can, used that, settled it out overnight in the fridge, and then pitched both cakes into the batch at the same time. Now, it gets into the bigger question of, hey, dummy, they're supposed to both be DuPont strains, so why are you using both of them at the same time? And from what I've been led to believe... They are two different isolates from DuPont. So the DuPont apparently has two Saccharomyces and a Britannomyces strain in it. These are the two Saccharomyces strains. So I actually feel like you get a better, more complete DuPont character if you blend the two together. There you Darn, go. Darn, that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of pitching two different Belgian strains, or actually multiple Belgian strains at the same time. Because I, I do think... Most of those Belgian beers that we get are you know, more complex than just our single monoculture type uh, yeast pitches that we do, typically. So I know that one year I worked on a recipe for a West, uh, Westy-12 sort of clone, and that was done by uh, M.B. Rains, who is the yeast queen. And she pitched six different yeast strains in there, including isolates from Chimay and... Uh, Westy and Deconic and a whole bunch of others. So it was like a very complex brew in part due to that sort of multiple yeast strain pitch. And there's a whole set of mechanics behind all of this, you know, in terms of people talking about growth rates and what actually dominates and et cetera, et cetera. Don't care. It's fun. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just too much of a control freak to do that. I have to admit, uh, I, I very seldom pitch multiple strains because I want to know what I'm going to get when it comes out the other side. Yep. That's that, your control issues. That's And, and that's me right. having fun. Yeah, well, you know, and everybody has their own way to define fun, don't they? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Our second question comes from Chad Chapman, also via email. He emailed podcast at experimentalbrew.com or questions at experimentalbrew.com. Says here, lately I've been getting onion and garlic flavor from a lot, but not all IPAs. Is my palate changing, or has this year been a bad year for the hop crop? I love IPAs, but find myself shying away from them lately out of a fear of a cold onion soup. This is especially disheartening at GABF last week. And by the way, Chad's question was actually what prompted the ask of Brian about whether or not there were any issues with this year's hop crop. But Denny, you want to talk about last year's hop crop and what you think? Yeah, you know what? I have not really noticed this at all. Uh, a couple years ago, when I was at Hop and Brew School, uh, the subject came up, and somebody, I think it was one of the hop growers, commented that the onion and garlic flavor comes from certain varieties that are harvested too late. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's about all that I can tell you about it. But I'll tell you what we will do. 
we will get back to some of the chemist people at YCH and ask them what's going on and see if they can have any kind of description. And the good news is that Brian said that he hadn't noticed any of that in this year's hop crop. So I think that it's just something we don't have to worry about for right now, and we'll see what happens. Huh? Well, and of course, there's the interesting conundrum that you have when you're talking about commercial IPAs, where a lot of brewers don't necessarily have just one year's crop that they're using in their IPAs. So, you know, we've seen a lot of, you know, spot contracts out there, you know, there's a lot of spot suppliers, you know, supplying hops from 2016, 2015. They're very well stored and they're kept in good shape, but they're just out there and they make their way into these IPAs. So sometimes you don't even know if the onion and garlic flavor is necessarily from last year's crop or an earlier crop. But yeah, I know like Summit in particular and Simcoe are two of the ones that I always think of being a little bit wary about those hops in terms of their onion and garlic flavors. That's interesting. I've occasionally gotten it from Summit. I can't remember ever getting it from Simcoe. And even when I've gotten it from the Summit, it's always aged out into this wonderful tangerine kind of flavor and aroma. And the onion and garlic just kind of disappears completely. I, I think it was like... 2013 2014 Simcoe was notorious in terms of some lots just being uh, I've made a beer out of French onion dip. <laughs> well, and of course, you know, it, it's since hops are so terroir dependent, it's going to depend a lot on who grew the hops that you're buying, you know. So to say that, for instance, a, a particular variety mm-hmm. is always susceptible to it is not necessarily accurate. Now you know why brewers actually will go up to Yakima and choose their hops. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's a it's a wonderful process to watch. So, all right, next question comes from Chris Gonzalez, also via email. Hey there, Denny and Drew. First, I have to say I love the show and all the tidbits of knowledge I've picked up along the way from you both. Yay. How did that happen? Accidentally. Yeah. As you know, many brewers get caught up in the game of buying newer and shinier toys to brew with, and some people are dead set on not reinventing the wheel. One of my homebrew club members pointed me to Denny's website, dennybrew.com, which depicts his pickup slash dip tube of his brew kettle being nothing more than a piece of copper tubing with the end pinch closed and 20 or so holes punched or drilled into the underside to drain the finished wort. My question to the both of you is, do either of you whirlpool? If so, do you find your kettle trube and hot matter left in the kettle, or do you do as I do and just let them rip and put it all into the fermentation vessel? I am simply curious because there are myriad ways to configure one's pickup tube in the boil kettle, and I would love both of your opinions on the matter. Mashing in, Chris Gonzalez, the humble homebrewer's cellar master. Well, okie dokie. First, I gotta say that uh, the pickup tube that you saw there, Chris, is not one that I use anymore. I found that it clogged too easily. You're lying to the public? (laughs) No, I thought I'd change that picture on my website. If not, I'll have to do that. It went went from the valve kind of like with with a couple bends in it down to the middle bottom of the kettle. had holes drilled in the bottom to pick it up. It worked well for a long time, but uh, eventually I started having clogging problems with it. So what I use now is a piece of 3 8 inch copper tubing that comes off my valve on the inside of the kettle and then just curves right back around to the edge of the kettle. Um, it's pretty much clog proof as long as I use pellet hops or I bag whole hops. Now, 
I should also mention that I am whirlpool impaired. Uh, I cannot get a decent hop cone going with a whirlpool to save my beer. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. I've been told that if you use a converted keg for a kettle, the rounded bottom uh, makes that nearly impossible to do. I don't know if that's the case. But I have come to the conclusion that it just doesn't matter. Like I said, if I use whole hops, I bag them. But most of the time, I use pellet hops in my kettle, and I just let them go right into that pickup tube, through the pump, and into the fermenter. I just don't care. They don't negatively impact the beer whatsoever. Um, there have been two studies that I know of, two experiments that I know of, where beer was fermented with trube and without trube. And in both of those experiments, all the tasters preferred the beer that was fermented with the trube in it. They found it to be clearer and better tasting. Um, whether or not that would be the case for everybody, I don't know. But my own assessment is that it certainly doesn't hurt to have all that stuff in your fermenter. And it sure makes life a lot easier. Yeah, less stress, less fuss, less mess. And I think, yeah, the Brulosophy's done a few Trube experiments and found that tasters either preferred the Trube to beers or didn't or couldn't reliably detect the difference between they, the they, two. They did one, I believe, and there was another one that was done on the Homebrew Digest maybe like 15 years ago by a guy named Joachim Rude. Unfortunately, when Homebrew Digest uh, transitioned to a new platform, their archives were lost, so that one isn't available anymore. But Marshall's is. Try it for yourself. I don't see that there's anything wrong with it, and I've been doing it that way for a long time. Uh, the HPD, when they transitioned, all that knowledge lost like tears in the rain. <laughs> yeah, well, some knowledge, some BS. Who knows? All righty. Our last question here. We're going to let Drew answer, but I have a pretty firm opinion about it also. Yeah. This comes from Ben Bevins via Facebook, who says, So, guys, a question for the pod, or you can just answer me. Well, we did both, and here we go. For my last beer in the UK before I moved to Oz, I want to brew a black rye PA with blackberry. What would be a good hop to compliment? P.S. Love what you do. You want to start? Well, sure. I think if you're going to go blackberry, you want something that's going to be fruity. Uh, if you want to go, say, uber traditional, and given that you're in the UK, there's a long history of this. And also in Australia, you can use American Cluster. American Cluster, which is a notorious hop in the U.S. for both being catty, also has a lot of berry flavors. So, and blackberry is one of the primary descriptors on cluster. So, if you're asking me, I would say if you if you want to reinforce that blackberry character, go with cluster. It's going to be kind of a, a big old old school uh, throwback kind of nod to tradition and to brewing history in three separate countries. Now, if you want something uh, newfangled, I would be careful about anything that's overly citrus. I would still stick with something that's more uh, herbal or fruit and berry like. So just take a look at those descriptors and find that. But Cluster is the one that immediately pops to my mind. And now we bring you to our regularly scheduled rant by Denny Khan about Black IPA. And, and not just that, but Ben, I think that you are trying to cram too much into this beer. A Black IPA on its own is going to have some very forward flavors to it. Adding the rye to it is going to make it 
even a bit harsher. I mean, one one of my problems with black IPAs is that I feel like the uh, dark malts and the high hopping level kind of clash and make the beer unpleasant for me. When you put rye in there, you're adding the spice from the rye into it, and that's going to kind of even do a little bit more with that. And then you're going to put blackberries in there. Where are they going to go in the flavor profile? How, I mean, blackberries are a very, very subtle flavor. So how are you going to get them to come through all the, the roast malt and the hops and the rye? I kind of think that maybe what you need to do is rethink this concept here and, you know, maybe a rye IPA with blackberry. Uh, maybe a black rye IPA. Think, think about what you've got here, Ben, and try and taste it in your mind and think about what each element is going to bring to the overall flavor. And I think that once you can envision what that beer is going to taste like, then your question about hops will answer itself. There, you like that? Here's what I heard when you said that. Blah, 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 blah. I don't like your idea. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, well, you heard wrong. I was I, I was trying to help him to uh, to to focus his idea. No, and that's and that's a fair point. Focus is usually a good one. I would say if you if you're if if you're kind of wanting to still go down this path and do a black IPA with blackberries, the biggest the biggest thing I will tell you is make sure you get yourself a debittered roast. You know, use like a Carafa two special or a Carafa three special, something like that. Uh, midnight wheat if i think midnight wheat's huskless as well use a huskless roast malt if you want to really do this because to denny's point the roast is going to be your big distractor yeah you can make a rye pa with blackberries work not a problem because you're going to have fruit with the spice and and your hoppy notes as long as you keep the hops in the right area it's the roast i think that actually causes the biggest problem so take a cue from the original black ipas that were I should say the second generation of black IPAs that were the ones that kind of kicked off the trend for a while. A lot of those used a carafe malt, or they even actually just used cinnamar coloring to get the blackness without any roast notes. So that would be that would be my big key. And in that case, the question arises: What's the point of black? Fun. None so black. Why not? Why not purple? Why not green? Uh, there are people out there making purple IPAs now with the uh, butterfly PT. <laughs> Okay, okay. So even when I try and like uh, go way out there, I'm too late. The universe is stranger than you can imagine. Boy, that's no... (laughs) Yeah, I believe it. Okay, so Drew today has both the quick tip and the something other than beer. Hit it. Yeah, so the quick tip is I'm getting ready to brew on my club system uh, next week. And our club system is a 50-barrel monstrosity that has a very tall vertical column to it uh, from the pots. And one of the things that we found is that even though we have a really nice mash braid in there and everything else, boy, that weight of malt will crush the hell out of everything. So in order to help keep our lauder running, we always use rice hulls. And that reminds me of the fact, like, you know, since I've also talked about cream ale earlier this year and play around a lot with wheat and play around a lot with oats, rice hulls are your friend. Always make sure you kind of have some on hand particularly if you're going to play. They're cheap insurance. They don't add any flavor. They don't really cost you much. So just go and do that unless you really like the idea of standing around a mash done going, why won't you lauder? 
Please. <laughs> so go get yourself some rice holes. You know what? I've had I've had a big bag of rice holes uh, stuck out in my brewing cabinets for years and years and years, and I've never even opened it because I've never had a need to. Uh, I guess I'm lucky. Well, better lucky than pretty. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. Okay, so what do you got for something other this week? I got two things because I'm greedy. First one is what I've, I posted about this a little while back on social media. That's a thing here in Pasadena that's just called The Sandwich. And The Sandwich is from this place called Roma Market. It's an old Italian grocery store that was opened in the 1950s here in, in Pasadena. And they make exactly one sandwich. You walk in, you ask for a sandwich, you get your sandwich. And that's it. It's this simple thing on a custom-made roll with mortadella and capicola and some salami and some cheese and some olive oil. That's it. No options. No tomato. No mustard. No, you don't get to do that. You don't get to change that. Literally, you walk in, you grab a sandwich, you go. It is one of the best things in the entire universe. And I guarantee you, your town probably has something equivalent to it. So go find the sandwich in your town. <laughs> that's right, man. Good idea. And the other, the other little piece for something that's probably a little more attainable for everybody is if you have not watched it yet, do yourself a favor, go seek out uh, both on Netflix or on Hulu or on your VOD device of choice, wherever you can get NBC shows streamed to you, go and watch The Good Place with Ted Danson and Kristen Bell. Now, one, I would be in the bag for almost anything those two people are, are doing in terms of sitcoms. But it is a half-hour show, 13 episodes in season one. Season two just started a couple episodes ago. It is absolutely hysterical. The premise of it is what happens if somebody who has led a not-so-great life dies and wakes up to find themselves in heaven. Oh, that's not where I thought you were going. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, and it is absolutely hysterical, mind-blowing, trippy, meta, the... All of the primary cast, they nailed it with all their casting. It is hysterical. You absolutely do yourself a favor. I binged the first season in like two days. It was that good. So go watch The Good Place with uh, Kristen Bell. It's on NBC, I think on Thursday nights or on your video on demand streaming service of choice. But the first season is definitely on Netflix. Go watch it. I guarantee you, you'll enjoy it. And that's my something other than beer. Wow. Sounds interesting. I might do that. You should. <laughs> okay. That means that we have said about everything we can say, and it's time to wrap this thing up. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, I'm on pretty much all the homebrew forums out there. Drew hangs out on the Reddit homebrew forum and uh, on the Slack homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to reach each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he is Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1-ALE. 626-765-1-ALE. 
Until the next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Brew.